ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome aboard our vessel again, and anew, as our crew prepares to take off and take you with us on yet another exciting voyage beyond the matrix of this world. This is Raphael, and I'll be your captain and tour guide for the next hour, and in just a moment we'll be piercing past the lies of illusion that intends to gate our consciousness in away from the issues of climate engineering and other shady government cover-ups, and their worldwide web of lies and mind control that veils and binds these issues around the globalist conspiracies and agendas that steadily approaches and encroaches while the rest of humanity slumbers. But some, such as yourselves, are awake and rising. Passengers, prepare to rise above these veils of deception and hazy skies. Prepare for your ascent beyond the veil. Oh, and you might want to buckle up. It's gonna be a bumpy ride. Welcome back, voyagers. Last voyage we undertook explored more the nature of the veil, which we fly past today, and some of the more sinister and harder to fathom explanations of illusion uh, that pertaining to mind control and a little bit on Satanism. We touched on a few aspects of the mind control programming that humanity is subjected to through media, through propaganda, through secret societies, and touched on some of the agendas of the New World Order, which are the, uh, the intentions behind most everything that we are seeing going on in the world today. When you understand the plan to forward a globalist agenda, uh, you understand that everything that is going on around you is going on to facilitate that. And that includes the use of weather as a fabulous um, tool of weather warfare. Uh, silent weather warfare is a huge advantage to this globalist agenda. And the levels of participation that are required to be in this program are still the biggest barrier for most people to overcome so that they they could get past their cognitive dissonance, the, the discomfort that is caused upon hearing upon these programs. Um, people cannot understand how so many people would be able to participate in a program of this nature and not have more whistleblowers come forth. But the thing is, this is a uh, highly secretive, secretive program. We were going to, in this show, illustrate what, uh, first of all, what a chemtrail is, what geoengineering is, what is at stake, the consequences environmentally, health-wise, and uh, hear from some 
panel of experts as to the evidence to it, and then also hear from a whistleblower on the inside. Neil is going to name names and programs and explain why there aren't more whistleblowers and what is at stake. And we're going to explore what exactly the rhetoric is uh, currently at in recognizing geoengineering's validity even if its implementation is still denied. I'm not going to do much speaking. I believe I've waxed poetic enough on the last two shows and I would like for you to just hear the evidence straight from the horse's mouths. Ladies and gentlemen, this month's Chemtrail Review. Chemtrails. And uh, chemtrails, by the way, barium salts are in chemtrails. They are 10,000 times more toxic to your nervous system than lead. They contain mycobacteria, viruses, Pseudomonas florensis, bacteria, human plasma. Hmm, wonder what human plasma is doing in chemtrails. And this is not by conjecture. I did a lot of research before I'd ever say this, but these chemtrails are nasty. And there's three reasons for chemtrails. The first is they, and I talked to my NSA buddies at Fort Carson, Peterson Air Force Base in Buckley, where I was actually their doctor taking care of the pilots flying and spraying the chemtrails. So I know it's real. If anybody says it's not real, they're full of it. Okay, because I'm a whistleblower on the inside. It's not open for discussion. And my NSA buddies told me, 95% of them told me, they were up there trying to spray to reflect the sun out to stop global warming. So most of them are dumb enough to believe that garbage. Solar geoengineering is the idea that you could, in principle, reduce the rate of climate change or reverse it by making the Earth more reflective, by reflecting away more sunlight, for example, by putting reflective particles, uh, aerosol pollution, if you like, in the upper atmosphere. You could put uh, fine particles, say sulfuric acid particles, sulfates, into the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, where they reflect away sunlight and cool the planet. And I know for certain that that will work. Not that there aren't side effects, but I know for certain it will work. And the reason is, it's been done. There's no big mystery about it. There's lots of mystery in the details, and there's some bad side effects, like it partially destroys the ozone layer, and I'll get to that in a minute, but it clearly cools down. And one other thing, it's fast. There's no question that large-scale climate engineering is untested and dangerous. We've mostly thought about sulfur, and there's a lot of good reasons to think about sulfur, because sulfur is what uh, uh, nature does. Nevertheless, there might be some good reasons to think about aluminum. It turns out, first of all, there's been a lot of work on the environmental consequences of aluminum in the stratosphere. The big deal, really, is that alumina has four times the volumetric rate of forcing for small particles as does sulfur. And that means you have four times less surface area for the same rate of forcing. And this is a much bigger deal. You have roughly 16 times less the coagulation rate. And that's the thing that really drives removal. So you could get away, we think, with much smaller mass fluxes. But we haven't run those studies yet, so that might be wrong. I began to look at, was there anything showing up in all the drinking water spikes across California on a pretty consistent level? What I discovered was that during the course of the year, starting in 1990, no less, that the water sources were all registering unusual spikes, that 
somebody somewhere was beginning to use inordinate amounts of arsenic, barium, aluminum, calcium, manganese, magnesium, and that all of these things, lead, um, iron, were all spiking at the same time. Why are these spikes occurring in almost all the drinking water sources all at the same time? And what we discovered is that the spiking from the California Air Resources Board air tests were also spiking in the same years and at the same time and coordinated with the spikings in the water supply, which led us to believe that this was something that was airborne and had to be hitting us from the air. The little picture is from a nanofabrication study, which shows you can make very high quality, and do this in just a jet in a very simple way, make high quality alumina particles just by spraying alumina vapor out, which oxidizes. So it's certainly in principle possible to do that. There's a big literature that's already looked at that. And you could do that by either building new versions of these aircraft or even re-engineering existing aircraft. So there's some ideas of that. So you go to an engineering firm and you want this done. They don't say this is hard or unusual. They say, okay, yes, we'll do it. Aerosol geoengineering looks like it is so cheap that the cost is basically not going to be an issue. That means that implementation decisions will be risk-to-risk -risk decisions. The risk of doing it against the risk of not doing it. And it makes the problem of how we govern it fundamentally harder and different and normal. So I've told you this, cheap to deliver materials to stratosphere, and I'm convinced that's true. I don't think that will change. But I think the more we do research, the less easy this will look, the more complicated the environmental effects will look. And that's a good thing, because right now it looks too easy. So I think that if we do more research, we're likely to find out that it's harder and more complicated than we thought, that side effects are harder to manage, and that's a healthy outcome that will make it easier to do the management. And by the way, it's not really a moral hazard, it's more like free riding on our grandkids. And by the way, it's not really a moral hazard, it's more like free riding on our grandkids. We do not expect this generation of kids now, the ones born after 2000, to outlive their parents. That's already going on right now in Louisiana. It's going on all over. It isn't just there. I do patient, direct patient care, and I get all their labs, and I, I do diet therapy with them. And so, of course, vitamin D, they'll send them to me and say, hey, let's get their vitamin D intake up. You can't do it with food. What's the situation with vitamin D and the people that come in here? We're finding now um, that about 90% deficiency rates. Because when they come in, it is, some of them are so sick they can hardly walk through the door. And it's chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, heavy metal toxicity, environmental illness, and whatever other label you want to put on it, Almost every single one of them is deficient in vitamin D and iodine. That's right. And you, who are you and what do you do? I am a physician, internal medicine, alternative care. You know, every year we do a big health fair here and check people's blood work. And so I've been doing that for, oh, you know, maybe eight years or so. So, you know, that's maybe 600 people. I've probably had three, maybe four people, certainly, you can count on one hand out of that 600 
the amount of people that have had normal vitamin D level. Over the past probably two years, I have tested several hundred people for iodine. Only four have come back normal. Same story in Amarillo out of 600 people, four were normal for vitamin D and iodine. Four out of 600. Now, I probably had six to eight that were normal in vitamin D. Every patient that I've seen that has had their vitamin D level checked has been low. It doesn't matter whether they're in the sun, out of the sun, use sunscreen, don't use sunscreen, um, whether they're fair skin, dark skin, it doesn't matter. And most of them have been severely low. A level of around 11 to 13 is generally what I see, which is severely low. And I've never yet seen a patient check that did not have a normal, or that did have a normal vitamin D level. So, what are the, explain vitamin D as a hormone and explain how it is the system driver basically and what can go wrong if that's not in our bodies. Well, it's, uh, it controls many of your functions. Uh, your, but is it a vitamin? It, no, it is, a, it is a vitamin that acts as a hormone, which some of your vitamins do. So it's, it's kind of both, but it, uh, it's involved in bone formation. Without vitamin D, you're not going to lay down bone. In fact, you'll break down bone. Uh, it's involved in so many processes that if you don't have it, you're going to be very sick. And I think that's probably... And then speaking with the former nutritionist and in reviewing the former reports, just even 15 to 18 years ago, um, maybe one out of every hundred clients had any sort of toxic metal or any toxicity. Now we have 99 out of 100 with toxic levels of either lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, or aluminum, or the combination of coal. Nelson. I grew up in Northern California, mostly Weaverville, and uh, loved flying and so forth. I retired uh, in 2000 from, uh, I guess it's the largest airline in the world now. Um, my airline and U.S. Air joined. Uh, the last uh, nine years I was an instructor. The last seven I was the lead instructor at the uh, Flight Academy, largest flight academy in the world uh, outside of the military. So my part of this, when I was first introduced this, I just thought, no way, I don't believe in that, that's impossible. But it did start me looking up, and I started noticing that uh, what was happening in the air was not a natural phenomenon of a jet exhaust. Um, you could see some normal jet exhaust, you can still see those. In fact, the, the pictures up here show some, you see little, little short ones go by, and then you see these huge, big, long ones. Those long ones are not a natural phenomenon of that jet engine. Basically, it's a hydrocarbon fuel. It comes out the back. It's really hot, and it's got some, uh, some elements in there. It's uh, CO2, uh, a little bit of uh, uh, vapor and, uh, and soot, and it's extremely up there in high altitudes, uh, minus 40 degrees, and it comes out the back of the engine, and uh, that moisture uh, turns to ice, ice crystals, and you'll see that white line behind the, the aircraft, and it dissipates relatively short. Uh, because that ice sublimates back into gas, which becomes air, and it goes away. But when you see these 
lines that go from horizon to horizon and they stay all day long and spreading, that's not natural. So I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know who's doing it. All I know is what happens with a jet engine in high altitude, and that's what I can testify to. I want to thank everyone for being here tonight because the, these issues are, are incredibly important to all of us. Um, I was a weather observer in the uh, U.S. Air Force, and not too long ago, a person handed me a video, and it was called Chemtrails Over Marin. Well, I had no idea what a chemtrail was. I didn't know where Marin was because I was going in and out of the Marin County a lot in those days. Marin, Sonoma Lake, Napa. I worked in the North Bay a long time. Um, and when I looked at the video, well, they said, because you're a weatherman, can you give me some advice on what you think this aircraft, these aircraft trails are? Well, it didn't take me very long into there to go, my God, I have not been paying attention. Like so many people, I have not been paying attention. It's obvious, they're spraying, but what are they spraying? And, and how high are they flying, and what is it? You know, I found out it was about 35, 40,000 feet. I took flights across the country, went to New York, uh, went to Chicago. But anyway, I'm seeing this layer at 35 and 40,000 feet and going, how is that possible? In order for a particulate to stay in the sky that long, it has to be nano size. That has to be really small. I realized that it was a weather modification program, and the biologist in me went, wait a minute. If you start modifying the weather, you're changing your precipitation areas, you're, you're changing the times, you're going to be affecting every species that now is using that water. And if you take the water from one place, somebody else isn't going to get it. Okay? So what we're ending up seeing now is we've got floods right next to droughts. It's a serious situation. You can change your, your ground microbes, you can change the plants, the timing of the plants and the animals, uh, you can change the whole thing. And I started looking at all the dead trees. I, I thought maybe it was just sun and high UV. Well, that was part of it. But also, um, the test started coming back where we've got literally tons of aluminum. Uh, the aluminum that we were finding, I started testing lichens because they only get their stuff from the air. And the lichens, basically, uh, the test in Calistoga came out uh, 40,000 micrograms per milliliter, which is huge. There should be zero. Uh, and the same thing happened for, for Middletown. Thank you for inviting me to be here. My name is Dr. Steve Davis. I'm a practicing chiropractor and a traditional naturopath, and I've been at this for over 40 years. We have an epidemic of DNA damage. Every time you go to a doctor with a complexing myriad of symptoms and they run a battery of tests and they tell you they don't know what's wrong with you, it fits into a category of your DNA has been damaged somehow and you may never get well. I have been on this quest for over 40 years. I left conventional medicine. I was a physician assistant in the United States Army during the tail end of Vietnam. And when I saw the drama that was going on in Vietnam, and I saw the issues that were happening with our healthcare, I left conventional medicine, went looking for natural medicine to cure those that were in these terrible states. 
in the DNA damage, you can look up on any Google site and you'll see radiation, chemicals, minerals, toxic elements, or the cause. We live in a sea of ongoing toxic soup, and we all are affected. It is a frog experiment gone bad. Dane just shared what would happen if geoengineering continues to go, and if we continue to have radiation from Fukushima, if we continue to immunize everybody for every scourge, if we continue to modify our food, GMO, if we continue to take conventional and non-conventional medications, it may come quicker. I'd first like to acknowledge all the young people who've come this evening. It's something that we haven't seen before. Thank you so much. My name is Mark McCandlish, and I worked for 30 years in the aerospace and defense industry as an illustrator, conceptual artist, and a designer. Uh, a lot of the projects that I worked on required that I had to be able to cross different fields of endeavor from material science to engineering to physics. So naturally when these things started happening in the sky, and many of the defense contractors and aerospace companies that I work for design and build aircraft like Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Rockwell, I began to become curious about what was going on. I was skeptical at first. I honestly didn't believe there was anything to the idea of chemtrails. Then around 2001, there was a headline in the newspaper. Now, this headline came two days after a sequence of heavy spraying over the Reading area. And I noticed the trails were persisting for most of the day. And that headline said, area hospitals report dozens of patients claiming respiratory distress. And that's when I began to suspect that there was something going on. So I began using the internet like probably many of you have, and I began looking for what the materials were that were being used and why. Now, there's an awful lot of technical material behind what you're seeing. For one thing, these particles, these nanoparticles that are being put into the air, not only help to shield the ground from the sun and block and reflect the sunlight, which can change the temperature of the air mass below that, make it cooler, make it come together and compress. But it can also be bombarded with microwave radiation from the ground. And if you match the frequency of these particles in just the right way, these particles will begin to heat up in the air. And that heat is transferred to the surrounding air mass. Now, it only has to be a mild amount of heat. It could be 135 degrees, but if you have countless trillions of these particles suspended in the air that are all being painted with this signal. They will all heat up at the same time and they will carry that air mass and all the moisture that's in it to a higher altitude where it will condense and become a powerful low pressure system. Now people question whether it's possible to manipulate the weather, to steer the jet stream. You have to remember that when you put a coating over a surface and it cools down the air mass below that. The air comes together, it condenses. When you heat up the air mass, it rises and expands. And so by controlling where and when these events occur, you can actually control the flow of the jet stream. A few years ago, it was discovered that the amount of snow that fell in the Himalayas near Mount Everest 
would actually control where the jet stream went over the course of the following year. And that's just one location on the planet. But if you have thousands upon thousands of planes spraying this material in different regions around the world all at the same time, you can just imagine the amount of chaos that this will throw into the weather system for the entire planet. Now, the other side of this, of course, is the toxicology, the toxic effects that these materials have. Now, if this ball right here was a red blood cell, something you can't even see without a microscope, you could line 50 of these particles up next to a single red blood cell. That's how tiny they are. They can be absorbed right through the skin. And of course, there's almost no filtration system that you can wear that will prevent these things from being introduced into your body during respiration. It was an Air Force study, United States Air Force study that was conducted between 1993 and 2001. It was called In Vitro Toxicity of Aluminum Nanoparticles in Rat Alveolar Macrophages. Sounds real technical, but all it says is aluminum nanoparticles have a toxic effect on the white blood cells, the part of your immune system that exists right in your lungs, in the alveoli, the little air sacs that expand and contract when you breathe. Okay, this is your first line of defense against infection. So if you are able to suppress the activity of the immune system in the lungs, it means that anything else you put into the air, it'll go right into your system without your being able to defend against it. This is why it is so serious, not just at a toxic level, but as an epidemiological situation in terms of infection. And with this scare that we're having now about Ebola, you can just imagine, you can just imagine what might happen if the wrong material gets sprayed in the air. There is something else that we should be aware of, and that is that anytime you're spraying chemicals over populated areas, it starts to fall under the purview of Title 50 United States Code, which is the statutes regarding chemical and biological warfare. Now, there are sections in Chapter 32 of Title 50 where it talks about exceptions to this prohibition of spraying over populated areas. There has to be a presidential directive in writing. There has to be notice given to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. There has to be a written notice given to each governor in each state where the spraying is anticipated to occur. So this means that there is a paper trail. There must be. If you are familiar with OSHA, if any of you work in a blue-collar job, you know about the Occupational Safety and Hazards Administration. Look up the material data safety sheet for aluminum oxide nanoparticles. It says very clearly on that sheet, should never be distributed into the environment without the proper government permits. There has to be a paper trail, there has to be a permit. If there has to be a permit, that means that someone has to be responsible. So, if you can prove that this stuff is on your land, that it led to the failure of your crops, there has to be a paper trail for when and where this happened. There has to be some liability somewhere. So my guess is that we should all start sending out our Freedom of Information Act requests regarding the guidelines that are set forth in Title 50, Chapter 32, Section 1512. Look it up. You can find it on the net. Good evening, everyone. My name is Bill Chappelle. I am a Shasta County uh, board a supervisor and probably 
<laughs> Thank you. I guess an unfairly minority here this tonight, and uh, I'm not an expert. I don't know really a lot about this geoengineering. You know, one of the problems that occurs when you try to get something done, a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, can't you do this, can't you do that? No, I can't. I really can't. Very limited on our power. It's, it's uh, kind of a frustrating experience. When I ran, I said, we together can make a difference. And that's actually what I meant. And what happens is that nobody wants to project a bad image. One, for a politician, it's voting, how many people you're going to lose or not. If I said tonight, you guys are all nuts, none of you would vote for me, right? So, I mean, that, that would be, or if I said I'm a, a Chevy Avid fan, the Ford people wouldn't vote for me. So people that are politicians, they walk this fine line, and they really got to get off of it. I mean, they really do. They've got to get more to where they're actually working for the people. And another thing that happens is money. We take our money, our tax dollars that we work hard for, we give it to the government. The government turns around, and instead of helping us in their ways, they hinder us, and they put these programs out that we don't like. What happens is that if we do push back, they cut our funding back. They say, nope. You know, uh, you may not get this funding, you may not get this, you may not get the federal funding for a project. So they're, they're using our own resources against us. Greetings, I am Francis Wayne Mangels. I live in Mount Shasta. Qualifications first and then a little bit. Um, Bachelor of Science with Honors, International School of Forestry at Missoula. Master of Science Zoology, Montana State University. Psych Sigma Pi Scholarship and Community Service, California Community Colleges Credential. How about that? Mensa International. And the next step that's a magnitude above that, Intertel. God dang. Yeah, I'm 10 times as good as a Mensa. How about that? But the thing I want to tell you about is I'd like you to I've got data about biology. I've got some observations here about stuff we've actually seen and have proven. There's another website out there by John White where I debunked the debunkers, the people who told me it was BS. But there's, there's about 90 points on here that the debunkers haven't been able to touch for about six or seven years. So I think this data here is going to stand. And you're free to ask me anything in the realm of uh, biology, natural sciences, range, wildlife. And some of the stuff I'm seeing is pretty disheartening. Now, I'd like to get on to some of the people that got questions here now. So I'm cutting this a little bit short. But I hope you got good questions because by golly, we sure have answers up here. Obviously, we got to stay strong in this. This is going to be a longer battle. What's your best guess of homespun trying to clean up this air for our, you know, in the car and also at home? What's your best guess at cleaning up this air so we stay a little healthier? Thanks. Short answer. There is no filter that we know of that's going to take out a particle that's one billionth of a meter in size. So you're stuck with breathing it. This stuff shows up in the water. We have a rain sample right in front of me right here. 
No, you can't filter it out of water either. There's no way to get one billionth of a meter particle out of there. By the way, smoke, cigarette smoke is, is one millionth of a meter, and we're dealing with something that's a thousand times smaller than a particle of tobacco smoke. So in the process of being stuck, going back to it, you must create a daily awareness of detoxing that your body will remove it. Your body has been given, God-given abilities to remove these toxins. Magnesium as an element, two elements of magnesium will remove one aluminum. So you must, everybody is magnesium deficient, you must increase that. Other things as well. As your body discharges out the toxins, uh, particularly aluminum, heavy metals, mercury, etc., it's in your colon. The last uh, first two-thirds of your colon's job is to reabsorb what it is. Got to, uh, your body has this tremendous ability to recycle. You got to block the recycling mechanisms on metals. Corella and other algaes will do that. So there's more on that. Dr. Davis, you've spoken before about finding um, hair analysis and in children, in infants. I'd like to hear more about that. Is that in the Bible, we're taken from dust and we're going to go back to dust. The dust is the 103 elements of the universe. We need 64 of them in the right ratio that allows our genetic expression to be all it can be. What I find on a regular basis, the average American is deficient on all lines in this mineral war. However, the toxic elements are extremely active and they will take on and they'll sit on a receptor site where the normal nutrient metal should be. So as an example, aluminum will sit where magnesium should sit on the receptor site in the behavior of a cell. So the drama is, going back to a question about air filters, this is nanoparticles. This is beyond what your eye can see by 30,000 fold. This is something you cannot filter out. And yet when you breathe it, it goes straight into your nostrils. You have no defense against it. It will end up in your brain. And then as you breathe, it'll also go into your lungs. There's no defense of get that. However, you do have a God-given ability to get that out. So, in the, so at the final day, what you have is, is there a way to test if I am poisoned? And the answer is yes. The drama is your body will not allow it to stay in the bloodstream. So doing a blood test is useless. Doing a urine test is useless because your body's desperately trying to get rid of it. It'll get rid of it through, it may stay, store in your kidneys and in your liver. Anybody want to do a kidney biopsy? No. So the most efficient, inexpensive way to do things are with clinicians who will do DMPS and DMSA challenges, which will force the cells to let it go. However, those particular procedures sometimes are toxic and you have some difficulty with that because you're freely letting go for the first time a toxic load. For me and my house and my clinicians I work with, we use a simple hair analysis because it's an excretory canal to get rid of poisons because your skin is your third kidney. You get rid of poisons through your liver, through your colon, through your kidneys, through your skin. And your hair just happens to be living in your skin. So whatever is in your bloodstream will show up in your hair. So the point is, question, taking baby's hair and then shaving it, sending it off to a CSI lab and getting an analysis back, in a perfect world, you should have no aluminum, inorganic aluminum in your body. And when that mark comes back high, when cadmium comes back high, when strontium comes back high, and barium comes back high on babies, we have a toxic problem. Thank you. Yes, my question is for Mr. McCandless. I recently read a paper you wrote describing how 
um, the nanoparticulates were used in the jet fuel uh, to create a stabilization um, in the fuel at high altitudes. I found that very interesting. The particular um, practice of putting nanoparticles or uh, nanometal particles in jet fuel. There was actually a NASA study that was done, released in May of 2001. Um, yes, there we go, right there. It's um, entitled Nanotechnology and Gelled Cryogenic Fuels. Now, the study goes into a lot of different areas, everything from rocket propulsion to regular turbojet engines, the kind you see on airliners, including uh, the proposal to include uh, Jet Fuel A and JP-8, which are fuels that you find in jet airliners and military aircraft. The idea is that if you have oxide-coated aluminum, that is two atoms of aluminum and three atoms of oxygen, when it's consumed in the combustion reaction, it releases all that oxygen and it produces a much more efficient combustion. Of course, the aluminum metal comes out the exhaust pipe afterwards and it winds up being in part of the trail. The trick is that you're essentially containing an oxygen supply in the fuel itself, which means you can go to much higher altitudes where there's not that much oxygen. It gives you an advantage militarily. It gives you an advantage as a commercial carrier because you can go much further on less fuel. The problem is eventually it comes down as fallout that we breathe. First of all, I want you to bring up, I'd like there be the, would be the correlation between HARP and the enhancement that HARP does to the geoengineering. Most people have heard of the HARP facility. It's an ionosphere heater. The acronym is High Frequency Active Aurora Research Program. But there are at least, we believe, two and a half dozen of these large ground-based facilities around the globe, an unknown number of smaller RF transmitters. They appear everywhere on the radar. And, and this, the, the radio frequencies are a huge part of the climate modification. So we're all walking in tennis at this point, literally. We're more conductive. The atmosphere over the continental U.S. has been measured at 400%. It's historic conductivity. All this enhances the RF frequencies. And again, in the case of HARP, we're talking about 3.5 billion watts, billion with a B. There are no studies on much of the long-term effects, but these, as Mark explained very well, this is part of how they move the air masses around. Mark explained that extremely well. So these are completely connected aspects of climate engineering. You can't separate the two. So there's a lot of aspects to it other than the trails that we see so visibly. None of them benevolent and none of them in our best interest. And a biological effect to this, just so that you'll know, is that the more aluminum is in your body, the more sensitive you are to these fields. And what happens is we're seeing more and more people being energetically sensitive so that they can't even walk through a mall and other places or hold cell phones and whatnot because they themselves have become... I remember when I came to Reading in 85, we only had a couple of TV stations. We put aluminum foil on the uh, antennas. <laughs> You're now the new aluminum foil. And the thing that I've noticed after living in Reno for four years is that the more they seed, the less it rains and wanted to know what that, why that is. When you put these particles into the air, because they're so small, Moisture and ice crystals have a tendency to naturally gravitate towards these particles. If you heat the particles up, you can then carry the moisture to a higher altitude where the jet stream will carry it further downstream like a conveyor. So you can prevent the rain from falling where it would normally fall. That's one of the reasons. 
And because they're preventing the rain from falling right here in California, anywhere on the east of the Mississippi when it's got to rise again, they're getting rained on like hell. I spent uh, a couple days making talking points uh, to make a, a map, a guide map of how to present this to you. It is such a big topic. It's uh, very difficult to, to know where to grab it to begin. Several years ago, I got a telephone call from Mike Blair at the uh, Spotlight newspaper in Washington, now called the American Free Press. He asked me to uh, help work with him on the story of the white trails coming out of the airplanes. And uh, time is going by, I guess that was eight or nine years ago. We actually got inside the program. We're the only people in the world that actually got inside of that program. When you, say you, got, when you say you got inside that program? The uh, aerosol program, the chemtrail program. You're talking about information on the inside of this program? I'm talking about actually getting inside the program at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where it's being managed. Wow. And we actually got into some of the people that were were dissatisfied from within the program and they divulged a lot of the acronyms and the purpose of the program and so on. And that's the the only way that uh, anybody could ever have uh, broken the, uh, the secrecy of this program. Okay. We know that people have died over this program. People have been hit to keep them quiet. And we know that other things have happened to key people in this program. One of the key people that designed the aerosol barium salt aerosol was set up by people in the Reagan administration and he's now sitting in federal penitentiary. They still go to him to ask him questions but yet he is uh, in the prison. Uh, that is a little unnerving isn't it? Yes it is absolutely. That the man that designed the barium salt aerosol is sitting in a prison. The uh, white trails not coming out of the engines it's coming out of aerosol units on the aircraft. In the very beginning, the early days, the aircraft uh, were flying relatively low, 10,000 feet or below, and they were developing uh, developing the program. They were mostly contract aircraft, mostly CIA aircraft. Now the program has been expanded and commercial airliners, airliners have been outfitted with uh, aerosol units that are controlled through computer systems and satellites to dispense a barium salt mixture. It's a mixture of barium salt, not coming out of the engine. It's coming out of aerosols. And we have checked on information. We do confirm that the name of the project is Project Cloverleaf in the aircraft industry. It is very secretive. It is the most secretive thing I have ever encountered. People have died over this, talking about it. I listened to the, uh, uh, your broadcast just a few minutes ago. The general was on saying that uh, he is very patriotic and uh, he, is, uh, he feels compelled to speak out. And that's exactly the same way I feel. I am very patriotic. I was born before the Second World War. I'm an old guy. And I come from that generation and that mindset. This is my country. And I see my country being dissolved. My country is being destroyed right in front of my eyes and the people are being hurt. And that's why I consented to be on your radio program today. I know uh, you will remember that you've asked me many times to, uh, to do this, and I've been very reluctant. But uh, it's time. It's time to speak out and 
go public with these things. Well, that is correct. I have asked uh, AC to be on this program many, many times, and uh, you do this, I think, with a considerable amount of uh, risk to your own life, do you not? Yes, that's right. So that's there, right. there are people who have lost their lives, people who are now in prison as a result of divulging this information. Um, now, you were, as you say, very patriotic. You still are very patriotic, and you were doing this out of patriotism, out of love for your country. As I know you are. That's correct. That's correct. You know, Joyce, I'm in uh, Richmond, Virginia, just a few miles from the spot that Patrick Henry stood in 1775. He was talking to Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, George Wythe, and, and others in St. John's Church. And they were talking about the oppression coming from England at the time. And he was a little uh, uh, put out at them for not deciding uh, a course. And he concluded his speech to them with, I know not what course others may choose, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And I think we're approaching a time like that. Mm -hmm. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. Admiral Jeremiah Border, he was the chief of naval operations. He was a Jewish man. He um, enlisted in the Navy when he was 17 years old, stayed an enlisted man for six years, and then went up in the ranks to become the number one naval officer for the United States Navy. He was chief of naval operations. Well, unexpectedly one night he decided to suicide himself in his house, and he shot himself twice in the chest with a shotgun. That's a, quite a feat. Yes, it is. Now, he was the chief of naval operations, and he opposed the chemtrail project. Uh -huh. Then the chemtrail project started after Admiral Borda was replaced. Jeremiah Borda. He was a dedicated man. He was a sincere, a sincere man. He was a good man. So you're seeing a picture of how this thing operates. Um, the, um, the CIA finances um, projects with, with monies uh, earned elsewhere. The monies that go into CIA projects don't necessarily come out of uh, congressional appropriations and I will tell you that the Congress as a whole is completely oblivious to the aerosol program they are afraid to ask I had an interview uh, meeting rather with the administrative aide of a congressman he drove all the way to Richmond from Washington to meet with me we spent about an hour I gave him a complete overview presentation he looked at me stood up and he said what do you expect me to do Griff they would lie to me too well, that was his exact words and I shook his hand and hugged the secretary and left, and that was it. Uh, that that tells me that the Congress, um, I know for a fact the Congress is out of the loop. It's not that simple, Joyce. It's a, it's a very complicated thing. You must know the people. You must know what they're capable of. You must know their their operation, their intent. You must realize that you're dealing with people with no faces that haven't been elected. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they're putting in those aircraft. Uh, the security on the substance going into the into the um, aircraft has very little security on that. Whatever they whatever somebody puts in the aircraft is going to come out of the aircraft. That's a real concern. The Environmental Protection Agency has been told to to keep their nose out of it. On the state levels, the state various. Uh, here in Virginia, it's the Department of Environmental Quality. They've been, I was told by high people in that, that they were told to leave it alone. Don't look at it. Don't look at the air quality uh, when it comes to the aerosols. Look at, uh, talk about ozone levels and things like that. 
Well, you mentioned that you had talked to one congressman, and then you mentioned uh, Senate, uh, Representative Kucinich as we were going to the break. Yes, he, he introduced um, uh, H.R. 2799, I believe that was it, and it was um, he was called aside and told to take it out, and he did, and he got very quiet about it. I can't tell you, I can't tell you enough that this is a very dangerous thing to, uh, to get into. Um, it's very dangerous to talk about this. As long as people talk about the, the normal stuff on the Internet, um, they, they're okay. Um, the agencies have been told to leave this alone. Now, uh, as in the Watergate and some of these other projects that I mentioned, everybody involved thought they were doing it for some reason, some different reason. They didn't know what it was about. Everybody was going in different directions, and that's the same thing we find here in the, in the aerosol program. The uh, pilots probably don't know what they're doing. The crews that put it in, they have no idea what it was for. We believe that it was sold to governments as global warming uh, fix. We believe that, but it wasn't. Here's what it was about. It was about a sub-program, making a sub-program in a Navy program called the Variable Terrain Radio Parabolic Equation, VTRPE, Function Over Land Terrain. That's what it's about. That's, that is what it's about. You've heard all kinds of explanations for seven or eight years, but it's for the VTRPE. And it's part of the Radio Frequency Mission Planner. It's a system. It's a computer system. RFMP, Radio Frequency Mission Planner, and the VTRPE programs are a sub-program within that system. And it was first put on the Enterprise and aircraft carriers for battlefield imaging. The, the system would not work over land terrain adequately or accurately, rather, without creating a, a ducting of radio waves over land terrain, and they used the mixture of barium salt to do that. And that enables the whole system to function. It is the system that the United States uses in Afghanistan and Iraq and probably will use in Iran and some of the other applications, and that's what it's about. It's about the VTRPE. Um, I see we're running out of time, and there's several things that I've just got to mention to you. Now, within, within the, the Navy program, we see DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and they're into biologicals, and that's where Clifford um, shines. He has identified many, many uh, very harmful uh, biologicals coming out of the aerosols. And, of course, we, you're speaking of Clifford Carnicom. Just Clifford so Carnicom, yes. Aware. And that's Carnicom.com. That's C-A-R-N-I-C-O-M.com. We have the greatest admiration for Clifford, and we have admiration for uh, for Scott the weatherman, too. Scott Stevens, he's, uh, he's a man of conviction. We admire him for that. Yes. So uh, DARPA is involved, and DARPA is involved in spraying cities. We caught them spraying Asheville, North Carolina, several years ago with a substance called BCTP developed under one of their contracts at the University of Michigan, and it's an anti-anthrax. So um, that was one of the first that, that we saw coming out of the aircraft. They brought them in and sprayed the city. Uh, strange, Art Bell's mother lived in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and he talked about it on the uh, air, although um, he didn't fully understand it. We are in a desperate time, and people are oblivious to it. 
Well, I'm afraid that you're right on the oblivious part because uh, people cannot believe that this country would do that because of the facade of, oh, we care about your freedom and we're there for you and uh, we want to provide the most strong military to protect you. And they hate freedom and that's why they're after us. And all these phony, phony things that we have been fed. But, you know, uh, there is a paper that was done and I, I really appreciate uh, receiving this. It was a thesis by uh, Matthew Doggett that, as I understand, is not on the Internet about the, uh, uh, the documentation behind what you're talking about here with respect to this project. And I just want to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's called An Atmospheric Sensitivity and Validation Study of the Variable Terrain Radio Parabolic Equation Model, or the VTRPE, as A.C. Griffith was just discussing. Now, can you just help us understand, that's a, that's a big title, Atmospheric Sensitivity and Validation Study of the Variable Terrain Radio Parabolic Equation Model. What is, sir, and, and I have to, excuse me for asking this, but what is VTRPE? It is a sub-program, a computer program within the Radio Frequency Mission Planner system that's key to battlefield operations. It is key. We cannot fight wars without that. We've come to that. As uh, in World War II, you put a man in the field with a gun and, and say, go shoot him, you know. But today's military operates uh, by a satellite and ground radar. So this system ties into satellite radar and ground radar, and that VTRPE can paint a three-dimension battlefield image over land terrain from a ship 200 miles in the Atlantic or the Pacific. All right, so you say originally it was done to get this three-dimensional battlefield imaging uh, for, uh, crew, for warships and then for battlefields. Now, how does that translate into something that's going to be negative for our health, though? You're using barium salt and other DARPA aerosols. You're primarily using a mixture of barium salts to make it work over land terrain adequately, accurately. And there are some serious negative effects using barium, and, of course, a lot of that information is at Carnicom.com. Um, what else do you see as being a problem of doing now, You're saying that this was an, an, uh, an allegedly somewhat innocuous program to try and just do battlefield imaging. That's how it started. Then DARPA got into it and other agencies got into it, and God only knows where it is now and what's coming out of those planes. You see, you see, I, I tried to paint a, a picture hurriedly of the Iranian Contra, uh, which was a CIA operation, and and this this pretty much is a CIA Navy operation. Uh, you're dealing with people you don't know who they are. They're not accountable to anybody. Um, they're they're capable of uh, dastardly things. You see, the American people are totally out of the loop. Their their reality is based on their life experience. You see. The way you judge things and the way you process things, your opinions are based on your own life experience. Most people haven't had these experiences. I was sitting at a kitchen table with a, a person um, um, about a year ago that had retired from the CIA, and, and they said to me, she said to me, um, they do something bad to us, we have to do something twice as bad to them. They do something three times as bad, we have to do something four times in order to survive and keep the country together and keep the people alive. And we turn into real bastards doing this, you know. Another example is the array of technologies, often referred to collectively as geoengineering. CIA Director John Brennan. That potentially could help reverse the warming effects of global climate change. One that has gained my personal attention is stratospheric aerosol injection, or SAI. 
a method of seeding the stratosphere with particles that can help reflect the sun's heat in much the same way that volcanic eruptions do. An SAI program could limit global temperature increases, reducing some risks associated with higher temperatures and providing the world economy additional time to transition from fossil fuels. This process is also relatively inexpensive. The National Research Council estimates that a fully deployed SAI program would cost about $10 billion yearly. As promising as it may be, moving forward on SAI would also raise a number of challenges for our government and for the international community. On the technical side, greenhouse gas emission reductions would still have to accompany SAI to address other climate change effects, such as ocean acidification, because SAI alone would not remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. On the geopolitical side, the technology's potential to alter weather patterns and benefit certain regions of the world at the expense of other regions could trigger sharp opposition by some nations. Others might seize on SAI's benefits and back away from their commitment to carbon dioxide reductions. And as with other breakthrough technologies, global norms and standards are lacking to guide the deployment and implementation of SAI and other geoengineering initiatives. Now I could go on and on and on and on about the things that fascinate me. Even small changes in the abundance or location of clouds could change the climate more than the anticipated changes caused by greenhouse gases, human-produced aerosols, or other factors associated with global change. NASA. Shine so bright. 